0: Dear friends in Christ, if I were to ask you to create a mental image of what a blessed life looks like, I'm sure we would all come with a great variety of images. Everyone's list would be slightly or even significantly different. However, I'm sure that there would be a few things, several things that would occur on a regular basis. Things like good health, a loving spouse, respectful and industrious children, financial security, safety from danger. Perhaps they would stretch out into the community, such things as a a thriving congregation, a strong nation, and of course, plenty of vacation time. We might be tempted to summarize them all by saying, you know, things that make me happy. But frankly, that would be a little too shallow, though happiness is always involved. Blessed is the defining term in our Gospel reading. Nine times Jesus declares that certain groups of people are blessed. That Greek word did originally mean happy, but it was a particular kind of happiness. It was a poetic term that described the transcendent happiness of the gods, the happiness of a life beyond care, labor, and death. By the time of Aristotle, the happiness of the gods had come down to men, specifically to rich men, who, by virtue of their riches, were above the normal cares and worries of lesser folk. This Greek word appears frequently in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but the rabbis shifted the focus of the word and made a very important distinction. They never refer to God as blessed. They'll use another word to translate that. Instead, it always refers to a person, to a human being, someone like you or I. And it's a word that's prominent in the Psalms and especially in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. For example, Proverbs chapter 14 Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. In the Old Testament, the one who is truly blessed is the one who trusts in God, who hopes and waits for him, who fears and loves him. And then Jesus sat down on the mountain and turns everything upside down and inside out. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor those who mourn, the weak, those who hunger and thirst, those who are persecuted. At first hearing, it sounds like foolishness. It is not the life of ease we imagine, the life of security, a life that never wants, never cries, never worries, never hurts. But that is to use the world's standards, which Paul warns us about in our epistle reading. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? No, this is the wisdom of God and the blessedness of God. The blessedness of the New Testament refers overwhelmingly to the distinctive religious joy which wells up inside men and women from their possession of their participation in the salvation of the kingdom of God. Jeff Gibb notes that this adjective, blessed, in Matthew has a strong connotation of present and future salvation does not mean happy but something much stronger something tantamount to saved it needs to participate even now in the new creation of the end times the age to come for example as jesus prepares to explain the parable of the sower to his disciples in private he contrasts the unhearing the unbelieving of the crowds with their condition declaring but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear for truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So for Jesus, and for this doorway into the Sermon on the Mount, to be blessed is to see and to hear as members of the kingdom of God. So who are these people? Can we number ourselves among them? Do we even want to be poor or mournful, meek or hungering and thirsting? I doubt any of us would deliberately go out and look to be persecuted. Perhaps the key to all these questions is a right understanding of the first programmatic beatitude. Specifically, to whom is it addressed? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The only other place that Matthew uses the word poor in a theological sense is in chapter 11. And his use of the word there prevents us from making poor in spirit either a virtue or an attitude of any kind. Let me remind you of the the setting and the conversation back in, in chapter 11. From prison, John sends disciples asking Jesus, Are you the one who is to come or do we look for another? And Jesus replies, telling John's disciples to go and tell John what you hear and see. And then Jesus identifies various groups of people who has received his ministry. Blind people lame people, lepers, deaf people, dead people, and the poor. Setting aside the poor for the moment, every other group refers to a people in an objective condition of need. There's nothing in the description about the attitude or the awareness of these people. This same objective character naturally applies to the poor who received the good news in 11.5 and to the poor in spirit here in 5.3. To be poor in spirit, in other words, refers to an objective status or condition. To be spiritually poor, then, is the equivalent of being spiritually destitute, without resource, without one needs in the spiritual realm. Those who are poor in spirit must have their needs provided by another. Are we the poor in spirit, numbered with the spiritually bankrupt? Well, yeah, that was our confession this morning. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We recognize our sin in thought, word, and deed, our sins of commission and of omission. We are spiritually destitute. In utter poverty, we came to the font to receive the riches of another, and we did. As the pastor washed us in the water included in God's command and combined with God's word, his word that declared, You are mine. And so now, today, we recall, we return to that baptismal washing with the words of absolution spoken I forgive you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So once washed and now restored to the riches of the kingdom, we get a glimpse at the second half of that beatitude. Why are the poor in spirit called blessed? for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is a slightly unfortunate translation. We can address that. Let's examine this kingdom idea. In the opening chapters of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus' kingship has figured prominently. He began declaring that this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, who he describes five verses later as David, the king. So Jesus is an heir to the king. In chapter 2, the Magi come looking for the king by asking the wrong king, that is, Herod, where the real king was born. And then in chapter 3, the Baptist proclaims in the wilderness, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then further specifies the nature of this heavenly reign, saying, He's unworthy to carry the sandals of the one who sits on the throne. In chapter 4, the devil claims to be sitting on the throne, but he's willing to give up his seat to Jesus. if he will only worship him. All of this is prologue to Jesus' own proclamation. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And from that time he went throughout all Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. If the reign of heaven, or the kingdom of God, stands near, then the God of heaven has come down to reign, to perform his kingly deeds. Thus the reign of God is not primarily a place Rather, it is divine action that occurs where Jesus is, through his words and deeds. The poor in spirit are blessed because the reign of heaven is theirs. That is to say, the gracious, life-giving work of Jesus is given to them. He is the another who fills all every spiritual need, the needs of forgiveness, the rights of citizenship in the heavenly kingdom, peace with God. And now we, you and I, and all disciples of Jesus that live in the time after his resurrection and before his return in glory, possess, receive the blessings of the reign of heaven as well. First and foremost, the forgiveness of sins one on the cross. We confess with Melanchthon from the Apology that the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross was sufficient for the sins of the entire world, and there was no need for additional sacrifices as though Christ's sacrifice was not sufficient for our sin. Therefore, human beings are justified not on account of any other sacrifice except that one sacrifice of Christ when they believe that they have been redeemed by that sacrifice. Blessed, because we are forgiven. That singular perfect sacrifice atoned for the sin of the whole world in every age, but it became mine It became yours when each of us individually were baptized into that death. As Paul so famously wrote in Romans 6, We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Blessed, because we have been baptized into Christ. In and through that baptism, we receive the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit for faith and obedience Lutherans have always struggled to distinguish the power of the Spirit that justifies for faith and the power of the Spirit that sanctifies for obedience. The struggle of the redeemed flesh is always difficult and painful. Yet Pieper assures us that victory in this battle is assured to him who continues in the grace of God and God's word and thus gives the Holy Spirit opportunity to work in him effectively with his divine power. Blessed, because we have the power of the Spirit. And the blessings of the reign of heaven come to us again this morning, in the true body and blood of Christ, in the bread and wine. For where the physical elements are, there also are the divine elements, as the words of promise say, this is my body, this is my blood. These blessings come to us with the bread and wine, as we receive all four elements. These blessings come to us under the bread and wine, For the body and the blood of Christ are hidden, yet present, in, with, and under. Help us describe the mystery we can never explain. A mystery Paul summarized, saying, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Blessed, because we are fed the medicine of immortality. And finally, the blessing of the reign of heaven comes to us in the fellowship of the redeemed. Here, we, as a localized portion of the body of Christ, gather around word and sacrament. As Paul wrote in the very next verse to the Corinthians, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of that one bread. Blessed, because we participate as community, as congregation. This first programmatic beatitude as Christ sat down and began to teach his disciples is complete and utter promise and grace. We are the poor in spirit, completely lacking in any spiritual resources, totally dependent on another, yet in our poverty. Jesus declares to us that ours is the reign of heaven. This is the gospel, the good news, offered without condition, without specification, without limit. And because of this, Jesus declares, You are blessed. Amen.